and you're listening to a sermon from Bent Tree Church in Loveland, Colorado. For more information about Bent Tree, visit BentTreeChurch.com. Well, good morning, everyone. Let's uh, let's try some stuff out. Uh, we haven't done this in a while, uh, and, and that is, I like you to make some sounds, certain kind of sounds. Uh, be, um, when you hear something you agree with, uh, I, I like you to say out loud like amen or yes, I believe that or simply yes. Or, and what you're doing is it's quite literally a prayer uh, that you're agreeing with something uh, that uh, we're saying if we see a truth in Scripture. So uh, let's try that. Amen. Good job. I just <laughs> one, one more time. That's good. That's good. Greetings to you in the name of Jesus. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. Amen. Amen. <laughs> I love how this church worship is, worships. Uh, I love the singing of this church. This is a worshiping church. I don't know if you've noticed that. It's a praying church. It is a repenting church. Uh, I love my church family from little little kids, teenagers, young adults to our senior adults. Uh, from singles to marriage, we are part of this thing together. And God has put these people here in this t- uh, date and time, in this place, with this group of people. For you members of Bentry, thank you for making this place your home. These people, your spiritual family. But before we get to our preaching today, let me just share with you uh, that has something that's been on my heart uh, for a long time, this idea of family. Uh, here, you know that uh, D3, our D3 groups stand for Disciplers Discipling Disciples. That's why we call it D3, because it's a mouthful. Uh, two of our core values here are one, relational discipleship, in r- discipleship and relationship. And then two, generational faith. General faith uh, generational faith, it means that we as a church family, partner together to help disciple each other generation upon generation. Life on life discipleship. And speaking as an old guy, the next generation, we don't have long to pass on what we believe. To instill the foundation uh, to children, to teenagers, to young adults. Uh, They need this uh, in order to face an evil world out there. One that's getting darker by the day. Uh, and then we, with relational discipleship, which just goes hand in hand with generational faith, we eat, we all gather each week as this spiritual family to grow into the fullness of spiritual maturity. That's our goal. Young, old, everyone in between, to grow to be more like Jesus. We don't want to leave, listen to me, anyone behind. Anyone. Hebrews 10.25 tells us that we must not neglect the meeting together in worship as some are in the habit of doing, but rather we are to make sure that we are meeting together as that day is drawing near. Anyone else see that last day drawing near? Yeah, me too. Jesus is coming back. The reason I want to remind us of this is because I want to make sure that we understand something As a church family, very clearly, we need to not miss church. Each and every week, first grade on up, we need to attend 
worship service or what the little guys call big church. Uh, the very little guys, babies through the kindergarten, we have childcare and they pour Jesus into them from babies uh, on up through uh, kindergarten. It's amazing. But from first grade up, uh, when we uh, are in big church, we worship together. Some say, hey, Paul, uh, pr- you preach uh, too deep for children to come. And let me just say, that's simply not true. Uh, let me give you a little picture uh, Many of you know Annie that was standing up here, curly hair. She's beautiful. She's my daughter. Um, when she was in a high chair and learning how to eat big food, uh, we eat Mexican food, and I know that's a surprise to some of you guys, uh, regularly, and we would have fajitas, which are my favorite. And so I started giving her little pieces of meat and some uh, little pieces off that tray, and uh, I would give it to her, and then she would go like this, more more. She would start eating out and she got everywhere. Um, she would be eating the same thing and I would give her this stuff. Now she couldn't eat as much as I can. Few can. <laughs> but as she, she got the same dinner as I got, you got that picture? Kids from first grade up can consume The same thing, not all the same things as you eat from this spiritual meal that we have each week. Worship, preaching, prayer, repentance, giving. But listen to me, they can consume little parts of it and that makes a world of difference in their life. Even if they only get 1%, 2% coming to big church, if they don't come to a service, they for sure won't get that 1% or 2%. Do you hear me? And the truth is your children will get far more than you think they get during worship. Parents, children need to see you worshiping. Open your mouth, sing, raise your hands, join in. Let them hear the prayers, to hear the preaching, to hear the scripture read. They need to learn the discipline of sitting still. I'm talking about dads on that one. And now we also... We have packets of like things for them to do during the service. That's cool. And I color. Folks, when I'm not preaching, I got to have a coloring page. I call it doodling. You know, I take notes, but I'll do little doodles on the side. It helps a kid's mind stay involved uh, and, and learn to handle the wiggles a little bit better. And at the same time, first through fifth graders need to also, also, also go to Sunday school every week. Now, right now, that means children in first through fifth grade need to attend a Sunday Sunday school during this hour. Then our next in our next generation building. Then they need to come over here for the eleven a.m. service with you. Now, parents, what do you do during the nine a.m. service time while your children are in Sunday school? Well, there's some. D3 groups that we have, more Sunday school groups for adults. Uh, we, we pray that we can start soon. And we'll have more beginning, hopefully soon, in that second service. Soon, soon, we hope to have first through fifth in the second service as well. But listen to me. We need some of you to step up. Some of you are going, well, I, I'm just waiting for God to tell me. Uh, listen, God's telling you right now. He sounds just like me. Here's why this is so important to me, and it should be to you as well. If we don't get fed spiritually, especially our children, they will have missed out 
on what God has for them. But we as parents and the church members have just let our children down. You hearing me? It's like we eat and let our children go hungry. Come on now, I'm preaching. Families, we are beginning to do this. We are starting to see family discipleship growth. growth. But we can do better and we must do better. Now, would you be praying about this? Praying about being involved in this because we need teachers, we need people serving, we need D3 group leaders, we need growth group leaders, we need to add middle school and high school Sunday schools on Sunday morning. Uh, God is calling us to do some great things, but I need you to get off the sidelines. I need you to engage. Well, today, uh, as we continue working our way through the gospel of John chapter 7, the first part was all free. This is the, this is the preaching part. Here it comes now. John 7 points to the need to do this, this kind of worship service where the whole family, all ages, including uh, little kids to senior adults, requires humility, sacrifice, and that we come. Well, before we go any further, let's pray and ask God to bless our time. Would you bow your head? Hmm. Let's just go to the Lord in prayer. If there is something you need to repent of right now, some sin that has creeped in from the week, let's do that. If there's someone we need to forgive right now, let's forgive. God, I pray that our church become not just a worshiping church, but one that does well in discipleship. God, we see that growing exponentially, but God, we pray that you help us with Sunday school teachers and servers and people that are engaging and giving of their time and money and effort. God, would you make this church into what you want it to be? God, as we get ready to to hear your word expounded upon. God, would you speak through me? Would you hide me behind the cross? We want to hear your word today. Give us that spiritual meal that only your Holy Spirit can deliver to us. And God, we lay our hearts before you. They're open to hearing your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, get something to write with. Get your Bibles out. Let's remember where we're Add in the setting of this John chapter 7. We know from verse 30 that after Jesus preaches, the religious leaders had tried to arrest Jesus. You remember that? But somehow they couldn't arrest what, I'm going to make sure my watch doesn't ring. We're not told what reason they couldn't arrest him. uh, But we don't know if Jesus supernaturally just hid himself or he slipped into the crowd unnoticed. But ultimately, we're told that they couldn't arrest Jesus because it was not yet time for him uh, to be arrested. His hour had not yet come. So let's look at verse 30 again. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. That God is in control of the final seconds of the clock here. That should not surprise us, that he's sovereign. That God is controlling the clock and Jesus has his mission to fulfill before he will offer himself up willingly as a sacrifice for the cross. Now, our last time together, we examined the question that we found at the end of verse 31. Look at it. 
Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Many in the crowd are believing that Jesus is the Messiah. Many in the crowd are listening to Jesus preach and they begin to believe. They believe that he is the Christ who has come to save his people from their sins. And they ask the question as a way to demonstrate that they are placing their faith in Jesus as the Messiah. They are, in a sense, making a statement by asking the question. I know that sounds funny to our ears, but that is the tried and true way of understanding truth is to say, uh, asking the questions. Do us ask what it's not, what it is. Now remember, there are two groups of people making up this crowd. First, that's the common folk. Although we're not told how many there are uh, there exactly, we can know that they're in the thousands at the very minimum. That's because Jesus is teaching on the Temple Mount during this time of the Feast of Tabernacles. There would have already been thousands up there. And this was the largest of the three great annual feasts. Even if Jesus hadn't been teaching, there would have been thousands there. But with him there, it's packed. But with Jesus preaching and him being so famous for his teaching and his miraculous signs, you know there had to be many, many listening. So when John 7 verse 31 says many are believing, that's probably a very large number. But that makes the second group very nervous and worried and upset. The Jewish leaders of the second group, and, and although they don't have the significance in numbers like the common folk, they had the political, they had the religious, they had the ruling power that makes them the force to be reckoned with. They had the power of the sword. The religious leaders are worried about the power of Jesus being accumulated with all these people starting to follow him. On one hand, they're worried about the possibility of Jesus beginning some kind of military revolution that could bring the wrath of the Roman uh, occupation down on them. And on the other hand, these rulers are simply worried that the, the large crowd will throw them out in favor of Jesus and they would lose money, power, significance. So between verses 31 and verse 32, you might draw a line there. Apparently, the Jewish leaders, are, are they're retreating. They go into a huddle. You know what I mean? They're like, guys, we need to talk about this. They go somewhere else private, apparently off the Temple Mount. They're considering what has just happened in verse 30 and 31. People are starting to believe in large numbers, and they're panicking. They can't arrest them. The religious leaders were considering what Jesus had preached so far and that they had tried to have Jesus arrested for what he had claimed in being the Son of God. So we read in verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, talking about Jesus, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. So that's the result of them meeting offside. They go, we just got to send like the the muscle, the temple guard to arrest them, in numbers, in other words. The council is receiving these reports of what the common people are saying. It doesn't take long for the council to realize if the common people are starting to say that they believe in Jesus as the Messiah, the ruling council must act and they must act quickly. These leaders are going to save their power. They have to move right away. So the Pharisees, a small but powerful group within that religious sect, 
along with the other chief priests, the scribes, the leaders, they give the instructions to the temple guard, go and arrest Jesus. So it's the next day. They send out their temple guard to arrest Jesus. Now remember, this is only six months, six months before Jesus will be uh, arrested, tried, suffer, and be crucified. Certainly we see in these religious leaders that, that plan. But we also see in the spiritual world as well, you could know Satan and his cronies are trying everything that they can think of to stop Jesus. They know who he is. What we see here is the providence of God. God's plan is that Jesus, as he is approaching his time, the enemies of Jesus are becoming more determined to stop him from moving. They don't know that he's necessarily going to the cross. They just want to stop him. They want him dead. Talking about Satan and his enemies. I mean, his allies, the enemies of Christ. It's almost like we see spiritual shadows begin to fall across the pathway. You see Jesus is walking. Things are getting difficult. Now think about what we've studied so far over these last few months and in these last three chapters of John. In chapter 5, we see Jesus beginning to describe and demonstrate his divine attributes. You remember that? That he is God the Son. He makes that very clear. In chapter 6, we see Jesus humbles himself to come down from heaven to give his life as an offering. He says, eat my blood, drink my blood, eat my flesh as a sacrifice. And then here in chapter 7 of John, we see something totally different. He's going to speak of the end that he is facing and his eventual glorification. So get this, get this. Jesus is now preaching again on the temple. It's another day. And the people are listening along with some of the Jewish leaders. Now they have these guards there, clearly ready. They're armed, ready to arrest Jesus. So we read in verse 33, Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer. And then I'm going to him who sent me. Now let's make sure we get this picture in our mind. It's another day. Another time. It's probably in the morning. And Jesus is preaching again. And he says, I will be with you a little longer. And then I'm going to him who sent me. The religious leaders now standing there with their police force. With them ready to act. This is a bold thing to say. It's clear that it's a show of force. And yet Jesus doesn't seem to, to fall back at all. He just continues to teach the people. When Jesus says, I will be with you a little longer and then I'm going to him who sent me, what Jesus is essentially saying is this. I know that uh, me being here right now is not what you religious leaders want. But I won't be here long. Jesus confidently communicates this message to the leaders. I'm the master of the situation, not you. Jesus is saying to these leaders, You cannot remove me until my God, the Father, has given me everything to complete and I've completed it. And even though the spiritual darkness gathers in front of Jesus on his path to the cross, these men will try to have Jesus killed. We know that. Jesus will very, very intentionally spend the next six months carrying out the Father's plan and that there is no power on earth that can prevent it. I love this. Jesus is going, look, you got me. 
It's not very long, but I'm going to do this until I'm done. The timeline of Jesus as he carries out the providence of God, the plan of God won't be shortened by a day or a minute or lengthened by a day or a minute. Jesus is saying, you guys, you can't alter that. I'm laying down my life at the point in time and then he says, I will pick it up again. Jesus is saying that in the face of the authorities there to arrest them. I mean, they're right there. Now, let's apply that to our own life and times. We don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but skip down to verse 37 through 39. Jesus will talk about the giving of the Holy Spirit to his people and the effect that the giving of the Holy Spirit will have on them. For Christ followers here, we have the gift of the person of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Well, you guys fell down on that one. Okay. We have the gift of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Okay. He is living and working within us. But I believe that it won't be long now until Jesus returns and takes his followers home. I think that's true. When the Apostle Paul says in Romans 11, verse 25, the second half of that verse, a partial hardening has come upon Israel talking about the Jewish community, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now, when the Apostle Paul says this in Romans, he's saying that there's a partial hardening of the hearts of the Jews, and that will last until what? Paul says, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now, we'll study this in depth another time, but this is important to get at least a basic grasp on this doctrine. God has given a length of time in his providence or a season, if you will, that the gospel message is being given to everyone in the world outside of the Jews. This message of the gospel had come to and through the Jewish people first, hadn't it? And it will come again to the Jews at the end. But at the end of what? The length of time that the gospel is given and shared with all the other peoples of the earth. Now, how long is that time? Paul says it's within the fullness of when the Gentiles comes in. In other words, there's a number that he's chosen. He said, and when that comes in, that's it. In other words, all the Gentiles that God the Father has chosen and given to the Son, Jesus, have come to faith in Jesus. Now, let's go back to John 7 and what we're talking about here. Look at verse 34 this time. John 7, 34. Jesus says, you will seek me. And you will not find me where I am. You cannot come. Now he's talking to the religious leaders, right? We know that the promise that Jesus makes here is fulfilled in his death and resurrection. But remember, he's talking to the religious leaders. I mean, maybe they're standing right there. They're armed. They're ready to arrest him. And when Jesus is raised to life on the morning of the third day after his crucifixion, the religious leaders can't find Jesus, even though they are the ones who had asked for, check this out, a hundred Roman guards to stand around his tomb. Did you know that there were that many? A hundred Roman guards. You can be sure that the religious leaders search for Jesus, but they never find him. They will never see him again on this earth. But they will see Jesus one day as they face judgment in front of Jesus. As the judge who sits on the throne of white. When Jesus will judge the living and the dead, what we read about in Revelation 
chapter 20, verse 12. In John 7, Jesus is saying, look, I'm going to leave you and you will look for me. He's clearly talking to these religious leaders. And he says, and you won't find me because you can't find me unless you have been born again. You cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. When Jesus says in verse 34, or where uh, he will be after his death, resurrection, ascension back to heaven, he says to the religious leaders, where I am, you cannot come. Now, underline that where I am. Like, give it a little boldness under am. Like, currently, where I am, you cannot come. Well, he's standing right there. So think about this. Why does he say it that way? Now, we can't. Why can't these religious leaders come to where Jesus will be, but he says, where I am? Because they're not redeemed. These guys are enemies of God. At least most of them are at this point. A few of them will be saved, we know, like Nicodemus. But Jesus makes this statement, you cannot come to where I am, present tense. We also need to take a deep gulp here, And realize that the time is short. That Jesus says that there is only a little time left on this earth. No one knows the date or the time of Jesus' return. We only know that we should expect it any day. This should drive us to urgency in our faith. So I'm going, come to church. Let's disciple each other. The day's coming. But let me say, even if Jesus doesn't come back for 200 more years... You and I are not going to make it that long, are we? How long do you have left to live? A day? A year? Five years? 10? 25? We don't know that. You, you little guys, you know, 10, 10 years old, you got 70, 80 years ahead of you? That's not a lot of time. There's so little time to live the life of Christ within us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Listen to what God tells us through the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 55, verse 6. He says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Clock is ticking. In verse 34, when Jesus says, where I am, you cannot come. He's talking about his deity as the son of God. It's going to blow some of your minds. Some of you, it's going to go right over you. So hang on. Even though he was talking at the present time, speaking from earth, he says, where I am, you cannot come. Back in verse 33, he said, I'm going to him, the father who sent me. Now, this might blow your mind, so hang with me. It blows my mind very quickly. It's not hard to blow my mind. Jesus is describing his two natures as both truly God and yet truly man at the same time. One man, two natures. Two natures, one man, Christ Jesus. If you put these two statements together, where I am and I go unto him that sent me, you begin to see that Jesus describes his distinctive two natures of both being truly man and truly God. Now think about this, think about this. When he says where I am, he's talking about his presence as God, the eternal God in heaven. He's everywhere. Who who Jesus is as God the Son. He's talking about his God nature. And yet he preaches to this crowd in John 7. He's standing there. He's going to go to heaven. That was still a future event. 
in John 34, 734. That speaks of his human nature. He's being truly man. Do you see that? Now write that down. I know it blows our mind, that, that right there. But it's solid, old school doctrine you need to understand. Here it is. Jesus has two natures. Truly God, and yet at the same time, truly man. Now, you could say fully, but that really doesn't describe it right. He's truly. He's truly God, truly man at the same time. Jesus has two natures. Truly God, and yet at the same time, what? Truly man. One man, two natures. Now, but we don't try, listen, we don't try to separate those two natures. We can try to describe them a little bit here, but they cannot be separated. He's not two people. In other words, if we describe one nature of Jesus, we cannot use that understanding of the one nature to eliminate in our mind the other nature. Because that's what a lot of Christians do. And it gets you into heresy very quickly. As Jesus is truly God, he has all the power of God, which is infinite. As Jesus is truly man, he also has the same human limitations. You go, Paul, how could that be? God. So Jesus says all this in verse 34. Let's look at the response then from the religious leaders. Check out verse 35. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that he will not, that we will not find him? This goes smooth over their head. Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? Now, when this verse refers to the Jews living abroad, it's talking about about the Jewish religious leaders commenting on this. What Jesus had just said had gone over their heads. They don't understand what he said. They simply want him dead. They're angry. And no wonder they don't understand. They don't believe. They're not redeemed. And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. The natural person, talking about unsaved persons, the natural person does not accept things of the Spirit. Again, notice the capital S, talking about the Holy Spirit of God. For they are folly to, folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. They don't have the spirit. Spiritual, the spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Talking about believers. Here it is again, the doctrines of grace. Jesus is bringing up over and over, comes out now in John chapter 7 and also in 1 Corinthians 2.14. In both those passages, John 7 and here in 1 Corinthians 2, you should write a big old D-O-G out to the side standing for doctrines of grace. When the Apostle Paul speaks of the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are folly to him. He's talking about one's spiritual ability or inability. To the Jewish leaders ready to arrest Jesus at that moment, they have no ability to understand what Jesus is saying because he is speaking of spiritual things. Are you with me? 
And spiritual things can only be understood by those who have the third member of the Trinity living and working inside them. That is the Holy Spirit of God. We call those the redeemed, don't we? Those that have been called to life by God the Father through the Spirit of God because the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus calls the redeemed those that have been born again or born from heaven, born from above. The Jewish leaders can't understand Jesus and his reference to their, the, him returning to heaven soon. It's just gibberish to them. Like They're going like, what is he talking about? The religious leaders do what we all do when we come to something that we don't understand in Scripture. We try to relate it to what we already know. We try to examine the infinite by our own experience of the finite, and it simply won't work. This is dangerous. This is dangerous because if we are, uh, what we're doing then is we're trying to put God in our safe little box of definition that we've created for him, a nice little definition of who God is and what he is allowed to do and not allowed to do in our life. Like God, if you can stay in this definition of who I think you are, according to my experience, God, then I can understand and follow you. And I can be in control. But if you can't do that, God, we don't have a good relationship. It's why, it's what we want, right? A, a God we can define, we can control. He's like a tool that we pull out when we don't know what to do. You go, God, you're on. It's your turn, God. Get out here. Get out of your box. Do your thing. But that's not how God works, is it? So these religious leaders try to put Jesus' statements about him in eternity, and how they fit into eternity in their own context, their own understanding. They say in verse 35, <coughs> the Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and, the te- and teach the Greeks? Let me just clue you into what they're talking about here. The Jewish people had been scattered out of their promised land hundreds of years before. God had scattered them because of their disobedience to his plan for them, what we think of as the law, what they would call the law as well. But God had been faithful to bring some of the people back to their homeland. If you remember, we studied, we went verse by verse through Ezra a few years ago. You remember that? Now, let me give you a little history. That has all happened again at this point. I mean, not at this point, in our point. If you know history at all, in AD 70, after what we're talking about, Jesus' death and resurrection, about 40 years after this, we're talking about here, the Jews were dispersed once again from their homeland by the Romans. Jerusalem was totally destroyed again. And we have seen them return to their homeland again in the establishment of what we see today in the modern state of Israel in 1948. In both cases, it had been God's hand working through his providence. By the way, I would challenge you to look at history and see any, see any other people group or nation that has survived, check this out, multiple holocausts 
over thousands of years, and those not killed in those holocausts have been dispersed multiple times as well all over the world, and then to still be a nation and a people distinct from all others. I'm telling you, there's not another nation or people like the Jewish nation. They're God's people. To me, that builds my faith in God that he stands by his word to save his people he has chosen. Not because that they've done something good, but because he chose them and he sticks to his word to prove his love for his people for his own name's sake. Now, back to what we're talking about in verse 35. The people that did not return in the time of Ezra are called the Greek word uh, diaspora. That's the Greek word, diaspora. So when the Jewish leaders in verse 35 speak of Jesus going to the dispersion, they're saying diaspora. They're saying maybe Jesus is going to escape their judicial reach and go stay among the Jews somewhere outside of Israel. You got the picture? For the Jewish leaders, they're asking, will he go to the Jews and teach them there as well to the Gentiles? Boy, this is solid proof of their unbelief. They don't understand that Jesus is talking about returning to his father who is God. Notice the last thing on an unbeliever's mind is God. They are always trying to make sense of things by their own individual experience. So they ask themselves in verse 36... What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me and where I am, you cannot come. Please grab a hold of this. Grab a hold of this. These religious leader dudes, they were no idiots. They were not some illiterate guys kind of bopping around. They were trying to figure this stuff out. This was the top of God's people. These were the cream of the crop. They were the true thinkers. They knew scripture from start to finish. Much of it memorized. But here's the truth that this passage illustrates. You ready? No amount of religious education, Bible study, or cultural training can give spiritual understanding to the natural mind of man. No amount of religious education, Bible study, or cultural training can give spiritual understanding to the natural mind of man. None of that stuff is bad in and of itself. I love studying. I do. It's my favorite thing. In fact, they are all wonderful things that we just talk about. But what we're saying is that none of that stuff will make any sense They won't click until you have been made alive in the Spirit by the Holy Spirit of God. Let's say it like this. Write this down. It is only the Spirit of God that can divinely illuminate the natural mind of man. It is only the Spirit of God that can divinely illuminate the mind of natural man. What we're saying is that before a person can perceive the meaning of and the value of the things of God, God must make that person alive by the Spirit. They can't do it on their own. Now, let me say something to you that might both scare you 
and excite you at the same time. At least it does me. If you're getting this, if you're understanding what I'm saying about who Jesus is and what we're talking about, that's not me being some kind of really good preacher. And it's not you. It's not that you're so smart that you finally figured it out. No. It is the Holy Spirit of God illuminating what Christ Jesus is and who we are in light of Jesus' identity. It's like the Holy Spirit has turned the light on in your heart, your mind. It's the Holy Spirit that is taking Jesus' teaching and making it make sense in our little head, in our little heart. You with me? And if that's true, and I believe it to be so, if someone has been made alive in Christ, even if they are just a child or even uh, a totally illiterate person that can't read or write, they now have the capacity to understand spiritual truths of God that an unsaved person, listen to me, cannot. I mean, university professors, brain surgeons, rocket scientists, those are the smartest of the smart people, aren't they? But what we're seeing, though, is that they are, if they are unregenerate, it doesn't matter how smart, how high an IQ is, because even the most basic spiritual truth of the Word of God is just beyond them until they are made alive in Christ Jesus. Now, let me be clear. That doesn't mean we shouldn't study the Bible or culture or history, but that unless we have been made alive and believe in Christ Jesus, none of the truth of Scripture of what Christ says will make sense. Boy, that's humbling. That's just humbling. And that's the gospel message, right? That we don't contribute anything to our own salvation, except, except the sin that causes us to need our salvation. That's what we bring. That's humbling. That I need Jesus and I have nothing to offer him in return except to believe and follow. Folks, it's that thought right there that leads us to worship with extravagant worship. Another one of our core values. It's one of the core values that we worship extravagantly by humbly, in humility, we sing, we raise our hands as a response to the gift of saving faith. By the way, when I hear someone say they don't want to sing and, they wor- and worship and they'll just let other people do that in the service, I realize they don't really get it. I'm not questioning salvation. I'm just saying they don't understand the depth of their wickedness and the love of Christ yet. Because, baby, you will sing, you will cry, you will worship. They don't want to offer Jesus worship because they don't really value or they don't understand the value yet. Let's not be like the religious leaders. Let's not be standing there looking to arrest Jesus, demand that Jesus follow our way. But let's fall at Jesus' feet. Confess that he is both our Savior and our Lord. Jesus said this in Matthew 18, verse 3, the second half of verse 3. Truly I say to you, unless you turn around and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It's one of the reasons I ask that you bring your children to both Sunday school and to worship time together to hear the Bible taught when I preach or whoever's preaching. To hear the call of Jesus in Scripture. And the call of Jesus is one to total surrender. To simply give up and come to Him as a child in faith. To surrender our lives to Him. To give up our plans. To surrender our nice little concepts of Jesus of trying to keep him in that box to surrender and say I have nothing to offer you Jesus to surrender and give up our own plans for our lives and begin to follow his plan for our lives and say I'll forget my plans last week I sang a verse of a song that I thought just nailed what we had been speaking about it's funny because sometimes you know I'll go I don't know, six, eight months without singing in a deal. And then I do it two weeks in a row. I want to share another song with you. It's an oldie, but a goodie. If you know it, join with me and we'll sing it. And as you hear the words, let this song be a prayer that you offer to God. Even if you can't sing, at least read the words. Let, let, it, me, let it be from your heart. You, are you with me? It goes like this. All to Jesus I surrender, all to Him I freely give. I will ever love and trust Him in His presence daily live. I surrender all. I surrender all, all to Thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender all, all to Jesus, I surrender, make me Savior, holy Thine. Let me fill thy Holy Spirit, truly knowing thou art mine. I surrender all, I surrender all, all to thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender all. One more, stand up with me. All to Jesus I surrender, make me Savior, holy thine. Let me fill thy Holy Spirit, knowing that thou art mine. I surrender all. I surrender all, all to Thee, my blessed Savior, 
I surrender all. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, may that be our prayer. May that be what you call us to. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would reveal to us what we're holding on to that is not of you. That we're holding on to as our plans. God, we surrender all. And God, for those that are beginning to understand that you are calling to life right now, you're calling from above. God, would you show them how to step forward in faith to follow you as brothers and sisters in Christ help us to be able to grow all of us into the people you are calling us to be grow this church to be the church you want it to be not Paul's church not anybody's church your church Jesus it's in Jesus precious and holy name we pray amen Thanks for listening to this sermon from Bentry Church. To get connected at Bentry and for more information, please visit BentryChurch.com.